If not, uh, we want to turn to the Easter part of your Bible. Uh, most of you all know where that's at. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. And um, I would guess today that there will be more preachers preaching from this chapter than any day of the year. There's a good reason for it. Um, So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to begin our reading in verse 12 and just read down to verse 23. Um, This whole chapter is woven so tightly together that I have a hard time cutting it off. It's, It's so rich and... I wish uh, there's just so much that we could look at in here, but we're just going to take a small thoughts this morning from those scripture readings today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll begin reading in verse 12 and read down to verse 23 of the chapter. It says this, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead... Then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, Then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's. At his coming. I'll conclude our reading this morning, and the title we'd like to give to the message this morning is The Past, Present, and Future Resurrection. The Past, Present, and Future Resurrection. Now, in one way, I don't care for these days, a certain way that these days sometimes unfold, because there are um, ways that a day like Easter is depicted and remembered that just bothers me. Um, not only the Easter egg stuff and all that, that's obviously... Um, childish concerns, and, and I'm not here to berate those things this morning. Um, but much of Christianity in the real, in the in, in the greater world, is acknowledged, 
passively remembered, passively celebrated. But I think for many people at its core, it's looked at as a drummed up, but in truth, hollow day. That people, yes, will consent to coming to church and consent to talking about maybe Jesus rising from the dead and people will you know, give their attention a little bit to it or at least give their nod to it. But I think most people or many people at its core don't really consider the deep implications of what this means. This is the most important day in world history. Paul, as he's writing here, is multifold what he's trying to do, both in the part that we read and in the greater extent of this chapter. But one of the things he's trying to say in the midst of this is if Christ has not risen then everything we do in Christianity is vain. There should be no churches. There should be no testimonies. There should be no proclamations of the gospel. There should be no crosses that we symbolize his death and the importance of it. There should be no uh, people giving God praise and glory for what he has done for them. Listen, at the core of Christianity is the reality of the resurrection. And Paul is saying, a second layer to this is not only is Christ's resurrection important, it took place in the past, but it is inextricably linked with something yet to come. And so when we gather this morning, we don't just think about what happened in the past. That is part of the story. The resurrection of Jesus, as was indicated here, and as we read on the hillside this morning, the Bible says he was the first fruits of them that slept. He was the first one of them that slept and rose again. Well, if he was the first, the implication is, There's going to be a second. Or there's going to be more forthcoming. And so people very often treat the resurrection as they do the rest of the Bible. Is they take these isolated stories. And some choose to celebrate them and call themselves Christians. And maybe they are. And they look at each story in the last song that we sung. You heard of four different men and the activities that they did and the things that were accomplished. And how ultimately Christ was the true and better one of those men. And yet, truth be told, many people look at those acts in history and those people as isolated people doing isolated works for God. But it's so much more than that. Listen, everything that takes place in this word and everything that has taken place since the dawn of time has a sense of interconnectedness. God is weaving together a story of mankind at large. 
And so when we celebrate things, truth be told in the present day, when we celebrate, we celebrate things in part from the past and things to look forward to in the future. I want to give you an example of things before we get to our text this morning of how the past, the present, and the future are all linked in God's Word. See, the creation story is very important. I don't know that you can believe, I don't know that you can believe in the Bible unless you really believe in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Because so much... Not only about then, but about now and what is forthcoming is interwoven in Genesis chapters 1 through chapter 3. Because the Bible tells us that there is this pre-existent, omnipotent, or all-powerful, all-knowing God that existed before the beginning of what we call time. God is outside of time and space God cannot be contained, much less conceived, in our mortal minds. And he was in the beginning. And the Bible teaches us that everything you see, every atom that exists, was created by his spoken voice. That's amazing. Not only did he cause something to come from nothing which is in itself amazing, but the complexity and interdependence upon all of those things simultaneously is beyond comprehension. And the Bible teaches us that on the last day of His creation, He made man. And He made man in His image. You see... As much as the world tries to depict us as merely a higher form of evolved mammals, if the Bible be true, we must be more than that. It's either one or the other. It cannot be both. Because the Bible teaches us in the beginning after God had created Adam's body out of the dust of the earth, that he breathed into him the breath of life and man became a mortal, eternal, sentient soul. He has a mind, he has a conscience, he has a moral awareness that differentiates him from all the creatures of the earth. If you were to wake up this morning and go step on your back porch and notice a dog that was killing a squirrel, you wouldn't look at that animal and say, what an immoral being. Because animals don't have a conscience. Animals do not have a sense of morality, nor do we expect them to. Why? Because the breath of God making them a conscious, moral soul was not breathed into them. Why does that matter? Well, if you and I are a created being by a creator with a spiritual part of us, that owes its obedience and allegiance to God, then what the Scriptures tells us with no hesitation is that because of this, because of what has happened in the past, 
There is forthcoming in the future a day whereby these moral creatures will be held accountable by God. And so listen to me this morning. You and I both will stand and give an account to an almighty God for everything done in the flesh. Go read Romans chapter 14. It tells us this. Don't judge each other. You don't, you're not supposed to judge me and I'm not supposed to judge you, but it's not for the reason that the world preaches. See, the world preaches today, don't judge me and I'm not supposed to judge you because it makes you feel bad. That's not the reason why the Bible says we ought not to judge each other. We ought not to judge each other because all of us will stand and give an account to our creator. And he will do the judging. And it will be accurate and it will be precise and it will unveil and reveal the hidden things of the heart. And so in the meantime, if God creating us as a moral being is ultimately in the future going to lead to, and it's all connected to, a day of accountability. That's what Paul told all those philosophers on, in Athens, that there is coming forth, there is forthcoming a day whereby God will judge according to his son, Jesus. Jesus it will be our judge someday. And so in the meantime, what do we do in the present? Well, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And so do you see the connection? God did something in the past. He is going to do something in the future, which means in the present, we have a responsibility. The whole Bible is that way. That there are things that God has done, is doing, and will do. And in our celebration of the resurrection, all three of those things we take thought about. You see, in the past, there were some men here, people who were denying the resurrection, that one day people's bodies were going to rise from the ground. And Paul is arguing, he's saying, no, 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 I don't think you understand, because Jesus took upon himself the form of sinful flesh, the form of it. He wasn't sinful. He took upon himself the look of sinful flesh. And he died and he rose again because he has risen as a man. So also will all men rise and you cannot have one without the other. And so what does the Bible teach us about why that we should celebrate what Jesus did on that day? Because later in this text, what we learn is that when Jesus went and he died, that God rose him from the dead. And by doing so, he conquered what causes us to die, which is sin. One of the most wonderful things that we learn about heaven is not just that our loved ones will be there. It's not just that it will be a a place full of peace and pleasure. But one thing that the book of Revelation reveals to us that brings us great hope is that all sin will be completely vanquished. You will not sin in heaven and neither will I. And it will not be an impediment to our worship of God. I look forward most the sin I look most forward to escaping is not the sin of the world, it's the sin of my own flesh. 
I can escape from the sin of the world for a few moments. I cannot get away from my own sin. Everywhere I go, everything I do, and every thought that I have, I find that sin finds me there. You see, why is the resurrection of such enormous magnitude? Jesus lived a perfect life. Then he was punished for our sin. Having never done anything wrong. His moral compass was perfectly obedient to the Father. And wicked men crucified him. And he paid this price of death because what the Bible teaches us in the very beginning is that the price of sin is death. Because you sin, you must die. That's the price for sinning. What is death in in the end anyway? It's that God is going to forever separate people from his presence. And so Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. And he died. And then early one morning, I was thinking as I was driving here someday this week, About being in that tomb. He was by himself. And his corpse had no nothing in it. And likely his eyes were shut and his body was cold. And then suddenly his eyes opened. And his heart began to beat. And his blood began to flow. And at that moment, he won. He won. Death no longer enslaved the race of men. And because... Jesus rose. It compels, he compels an action from us. You see, the, one of the wonderful things about God and his rewarding of Jesus is that Jesus does not, I think about the story of David when he went out and he fought Goliath. And David went out and all the men were terrified because there was a champion that was boasting and calling forth their their name and and, and telling everyone, come and fight me. I've never been defeated. None of you stand a chance. And he was standing some 10 feet tall and he was this daunting figure that all men were scared of. Even the king was afraid to face. And then there was this little boy who in the eyes of the world stood no chance to come up against such a champion. And yet David, with the boldness of God, having given him life and breath and having given him the strength and courage to go and face that giant, steps out there from all perceptions, 
ill-equipped because no man had ever conquered that giant. And yet David, the little boy, steps out there and he takes with one stone's throw and he brings the giant down and he takes his sword and he executes him. And then notice the next part of the text is that David does not run across the field to the Philistines and partake of all of their gold and all of their garments and all of their goods and all of their spoils. No, it was his friends who had been cowards, who had lost to the giant, who had lost uh, in fear, would not even face them. It was they that shouted for joy and they crossed that field and they partook of all the spoils that had been left behind. Listen, friends, today, there is a forthcoming day where at the moment, what do we do? You and I, we quake and we tremble in fear over death. And we stand at the casket side and at the grave side of those we love. And we think about our own mortality and our own death and the moment that it is going to come. And even if you have been saved by God's grace, there is a natural fear that can come upon you of the unknown. And we tremble. But listen, we have a brother. And he conquered that giant called death. And now he calls us forth across the field to enjoy the spoils of what he has accomplished. And so you and I can live here and now being conquerors of death and rejoice with the Apostle Paul as he gets to the end of this text. One of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible is that wonderful taunt that Paul gives to that great giant of death where he looks and he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? You have no power over me. And this morning, in the present day, we rejoice. Why? There are two parts to me, okay? There's two parts to you. God created it that way. We already told you that. He made dust of the earth, made your body, and in your spirit, he breathed into you the breath of life. There was a day on October 6, 1998, that I was in an altar And I was calling out to God. I was dead in my trespasses and in my sins. I was guilty of transgressing God's law. And on the inside, God through his Holy Spirit made me aware of just how profound my deadness and my, my, how great that my need was. That's what being lost is. It's when you recognize that you have a separation between you and an almighty God. And there is nothing of your own strength that you have any hope to do anything about it. God, through his Holy Spirit, just reveals to us the reality of our state. And that most people, what are they dependent upon for joy? What are they dependent upon for hope? Circumstance. And when things are well, they're joyous. And when things are bad, they're sad. Oh, but the Christian doesn't have to live that way. Why? Because there was a day... When God personally called me to repent and to believe in his son. And if I did, that he would breathe into my soul the breath of life. 
And in that moment, in that fallen, dead state, in my trespasses and in my sins, as I was calling out to God and tears were strolling down my face and a weight was living and was, was beating across my chest and on my heart. And I knew that if I had died, I was going to face the judgment unprepared to meet God. And in a moment, a breath of life was breathed into me. And suddenly, just as Jesus opened his eyes there in the tomb, there this this, this body of mine had a life breathed in and suddenly my spiritual life began. I was alive and I am still living today. God's life dwells within me. I'm grateful this morning that there is a difference between people who are lost and saved. And it doesn't have to do with any of your works and your baptisms and the church records. It doesn't have to do with how people look at you. It doesn't have to do with what you've accomplished or what you know about the Bible. What it has to do with is that you were encased in a tomb. You were dead. And then God of his own act of power breathed life into you. And now I have eternal life is not future. It's present. I have eternal life because I know God. He tells us in the book of John chapter 17 that that is what life is, is to know him. And so his spirit lives inside of me. How do you know that? About like I know what the wind feels like when it blows. There's a presence of God in here. I can't. I can't effectively express to you what it's like to have life. But I have it. But that's just half of me that has it. Because this body is going to die. My dad is buried up there. The cemetery. The Brian spoke of his mother. She's buried up there. Her body is dead. My dad's body is dead. Has no life in it. When Jesus saved me, he brought to life this inward man. And when Brian's mother died, when my dad died, immediately to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And they're, they're disembodied spirits. I wonder what that looks like. I have no idea what it looks like in heaven right now. What does a disembodied spirit look like? Right? Well, there's a whole bunch of them there. And they're around the throne of God worshiping. But listen to me, their salvation is incomplete. It's permanent. But there's a better part yet to come. Because one day God's going to look down and this is all going to be over. Acts 17, here's what it says. Listen to this. Because he hath appointed a day. Do you recognize, you know, minister school, Brother David puts this clock up here. All the teachers have 45 minutes. I generally sit where I can see the timer. And it counts backwards. And at the very end, Big old flashing red comes up and says, time's up. Time's up. Some of those men are rude. They go past the time's up, right? 
Now listen, you recognize that your life and this world have a day that has been appointed by God. And right now the clock is ticking backwards to that day. It's getting closer and closer and closer. And there's going to be a moment where God the Father alone knows that time is up. And we sing songs and we testify and we carry burdens lamenting that day in one way. Because we love people. And we've been commissioned during our sojourning and our pilgrimage down here that we ought to see about the salvation of their souls. But listen, I believe the moment that God returns, even in those that you love most dear, you're not going to be in a state of panic. You're not going to be running around trying to get things ready. or You're not going to do any of that. Because the day of your complete salvation has arrived. The Bible teaches us in the book of Thessalonians, it teaches us at the end of this chapter, chapter 15, that the dead in Christ will rise. God is going to bring back a whole bunch of people with him. I would love, I think I say this every year, I'd love to be up there whenever he comes back. I would love to be up there and watch this uniting of the spirit of man with this body. You know, I wonder how it's going to rise. There are many people up there that have just gone back to the dirt. Their body has decomposed to a state where it's just just ashes. It's just dirt. But their body is going to rise. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, their bodies are going to change. Death is sad. I'll tell you one of the reasons why death is sad, because very often you watch people slowly, who once had vitality and strength, slowly, painfully erode away. And if you're a loved one and you've seen your loved ones die, it's, it can cause trauma the way that they just slowly decay and what they, your final memories of them are not who they really were. Fret not. That's the last that you will ever see them that way. Not only will they be back to their vitality, their body and their strength will so far outshine Anything that previously existed. And then if you and I are still around, you and I are going to be changed. I mean, think about this for a moment. What's that going to feel like? That's one of the things I love about what the scripture teaches. All of these things are experiential. People have made religion uh, today way too much about what's up here. About what doctrines and what orthodoxies and all those things. And though those things have a place, listen, at the core of the Christian religion is that we experience these things. They are real. They're sensible to every part of our being. There's a future day coming where God will raise us from the dead. 
and their death will forever. He'll, he will kill, he has killed death. Think about that. Jesus put to death, death. So today, what do we do? Yes, we make a yearning to those that are saved. Excuse me, to those that are lost. We want you to be saved. But let us not be so earthly minded that we don't consider the future heavenly realities that we all get to enjoy. Because that, my friends, is what brings hope. When we think of what God is going to do, and I want to say this as I close. What I'm describing this morning is not a fable or a myth. It's something that God can help us to fully grasp through faith. One day, every single person that is in this room is going to witness the resurrection of the dead. I'm grateful this morning for who Jesus Christ was, what he did, who he is, and what he is one day going to do. I'm not very old, I know that. But the more that I study the scriptures and the more I age, the less attached that I feel to this world. The less I enjoy it, the less I think about it, and the more the thought of a resurrection brings me untold joy. This morning, I'm grateful for Jesus Christ. I'm grateful that he rose, and I'm grateful that I'm going to rise one day too. This morning, I rejoice today in him, in Jesus Christ. I hope that your day today is full of great rejoicing because what do we have to fear truly if our greatest enemy has been conquered I've said it before and I'll say it again we make a big deal about death as Christians that I don't think God intends for us to make I think God intends for us to look at death rather lightly as a matter of fact because it's just a transition to a better state so we say what what, what is there to fear Paul eagerly awaited his, what he called, departure. And so ought we if we believe what is forthcoming. Thankful for Jesus Christ today.